Well, good day, everyone, and welcome to this afternoon's FS Club webinar, How the Financial Services Sector Can Thrive Outside the EEA Thanks to a GDPR Article 40 Code of Conduct. That sounds like a bit of a mouthful, it is, but we have Chiara Rustici here today to explain it all to us. Uh, we'll get to Chiara in a minute, but just a few reminders. Uh, you'll know me, I suspect. I'm Michael Minelli. I'm the executive chairman of Zen Group. And it really is my privilege to be introducing uh, today's session and chairing it and handling the Q&A with all of you. And the reason is that we've got such a wonderful group of sponsors who let us range widely and freely across technology, economics, and finance. Now, today's session, uh, as ever, is going to run with uh, me getting out of the way as quickly as I can so that you can get to our main presenter today, Chiara. Chiara's going to speak, be speaking for just under 25 minutes. And we'll then go to approximately uh, 15 minutes of questions and answers. Um, I'd like to say, uh, please use the GoToWebinar facility to ask your questions. Let's simply go to the chat area and uh, send them in to me. Uh, there's no point in emailing me. I'm here with you, so I'll get those emails later. Please use the chat facility. Any questions or comments uh, that we don't have time to answer will be forwarded on to Chiara uh, with your email so she can get in touch with you if you'd like to contact her. Uh, simply indicate that and we will facilitate that for you at the end. Uh, the slides are up in the chat area. They will be on the website with any other materials uh, later. Um, and I would like to point out uh, to all of you that we are uh, very, very keen on this subject because it's a little arcane area that I think a number of people have ignored in financial services. Without question, uh, Brexit is crashing down upon us. And a lot of people seem to feel that this in some way means GDPR also goes the way of the channel. That's certainly not the case. And businesses that want to participate uh, with the EU or, in fact, globally have to pay attention to GDPR. But Kara's going to point out some interesting aspects of it, uh, particularly to do with the provisions regulating code of conduct, that is Article 40. Um, so with no further ado, Kara's uh, details are on the site, as you know, um, and I'll hand over to Kara to get cracking. Chiara, the floor is very much yours. Thank you very much, Michael, and thank you for the opportunity to address um, your audience. Right, I won't uh, take long. I'm really so much more interested in the uh, questions that I am in my own presentation, so I'll, I'll do this as fast as I can. Um, yes, about the slides, uh, Please bear in mind, this is all subject to copyright. I'm writing a book. I'm happy to deliver this again to your board. So please reach out rather than cut and paste the slides. Um, I can do it for you and tailor it. But anyway, uh, enough, if not enough about that. Next slide, please, Michael, just to remind you that I am not a lawyer and I say that with a hint of pride. <laughs> I am an independent analyst. I started life as an academic and now I look at law wearing on the one hand a business hat on, having run businesses uh, for 10 years I know what it means to uh, implement regulations as well as doing your day job uh, and still a little bit of an academic hat on so I'm trying to bridge the two. So I have I have a, a sort of 50-50, a split life. I'm half academic, half business, and now I'm an analyst. So I just I, I do not offer legal advice, but I offer business advice on which legal advice you should seek out, because as you know, there's different ways you can have. Okay, so I have taken three perspectives, which at one point have all been my own. 
um, on uh, the GDPR. As Michael said, you need to worry about the GDPR whether or not you are in the European Union, if the European Union is one of your target markets or even if it's one of your source markets, you know, if you source anything from the European Union or sell anything to the European Union or any of your goods or services transits through the European Union or has a component that it originates from the European Union, you need to worry about the GDPR because um, as a short, you know, as a shorthand, you can't, you can't trade unless you move personal data around and personal data is regulated by the GDPR. So you are captured in this GDPR net, whether you're uh, based in the European Economic Area or not. So um, that there, we all know that regulation is not perfect. Um, we all know that it's very onerous, um, but we probably forgot what it is that it does well. And there are certain things that the GDPR does very, very well. So I want to focus on the positives first, and then, of course, on the criticism that's been leveled at the GDPR specifically for uh, the provisions that concern codes of conduct. And then let's see if there's a pragmatic way of doing the best we can with a regulation that it's still in its infancy, still has teething problems, and still doesn't quite it's still very divisive, let's admit that. Okay, so stay there, stay with me. Michael, stay on this slide, please, and everybody stay with me. I'm not going to be waxing lyrical. No, no, stay with the optimist. Okay, why am I or was I or part of me is an optimist? Because the GDPR is clever. It really understands that you can't have a horizontal regulation, meaning something that applies across all verticals and across all sectors, regulating only one aspect of all these sectors, which is personal data, and not come up short in the specific business context. The GDPR knows that. The regulator, the legislator knew that very well. So what the GDPR does well, and that is a very positive aspect of it, is almost give over, yeah, almost say, look, I'm handing over part of the lawmaking process to you guys. I know that it is uh, the standards that professional bodies and industry sectors give themselves that can really make sense of this regulation in an applied business context. So the GDPR strongly encourages a form of um, peer-led, industry-led standard setting in all market participants. Yeah. And it fully, it fully supports this by saying all of the thorniest elements of the GDPR, you can come to us, the uh, European Commission, and tell us how they can be made specific and applicable to your sector. This is what it says. When I read, and I encourage you to read the um, section, the provisions, uh, Article 40 and 41, for the nerds out there, I encourage you to read them. And you tell me if it doesn't sound, if, it, if they don't read like a veritable admission that um, essentially business context and technology judgment are crucial in resolving certain disputes um, above and beyond the courts. It's as if the, the lawmaker said, please don't resort to courts 
for these matters, please find the standards yourself. And this is why the optimist, um, and next slide, Michael, thank you. The optimist now says, next again, says, this is the beauty. A code of conduct in the eyes of a GDPR, it's not an ethical code of conduct. It's a different kind of animal. It's the collection of standards that ensure a proper, meaning application that is specific to a certain vertical, application of a GDPR. It's important because it pays attention to all those features or technical requirements that is idiosyncratic to a specific vertical or sector, let's say the financial sector. It's important because it allows large and small players in the market to have equal voice, if you want, uh, equal power to talk back to the legislator and say, actually, this is how we think your obligations make sense in our vertical. So with an industry-wide uh, code of conduct, even the micro, small and medium uh, players in the market, without the dollar you know, to, to, to uh, do lobbying at, uh, in Brussels, have a way of, have a channel to say, this is what, it, what the GDR makes sense uh, for in our context. And then last but not least, especially today uh, after the decision that we found uh, by the highest court, uh, the European Court of uh, Justice, um, a code of conduct it wa is one of the legal mechanisms businesses have to transfer personal data out of the European economic area into a country which has not received uh, a judgment of adequacy. I will not take a lot of time on this issue because it's a separate webinar. <laughs> I'm happy to come back, but data transfer is critical nowadays. Uh, most of you will have heard that the um, Court of Justice of the European Union has struck down Privacy Shield. Privacy Shield is a bilateral data transfer agreement between the European Union and the United States, which allowed uh, personal data uh, about uh, individuals based in the European Union to be transferred to the United States. So data centers in the United States or, or, or contractors in the States, etc. So cloud, think cloud essentially. Now, this bilateral uh, data transfer uh, agreement was um, ratified by the European Commission on the one hand, the uh, Federal Trade authority uh, in, in the other, so it was a political sort of um, agreement, it's, it's you know, a political uh, data transfer agreement. The court has struck it down on the basis that the legal framework in the United States regulating access to personal data specifically by um, the security agencies did not uh, offer guarantees equivalent to those offered, uh, to those required by the uh, European Union Legal Framework for Data Protection. So essentially it said the access to personal data allowed to the uh, security agencies by US law is not proportionate, is not limited to what is strictly necessary and doesn't offer the individual um, redress in the courts. So for these reasons, which are purely judicial reasons, purely legal reasons, 
the bilateral agreement is invalid. So on paper, any organization transferring data out of the European Union into the US, which is a third country that has no bilateral agreement, has very few legal options. So if you're in this sector, you will know that this is a headache for everybody. Um, European Banking Association has um, has also um, made it quite no, <laughs> been very vocal in protesting this. So there are contractual means, the so-called standard contractual clauses, or there are uh, binding corporate rules. There are essentially contractual ways of doing this, but they still uh, come up short. You still have an obligation to ascertain that the country of, of destination of the data has sufficient guarantees, or you have to stop data transfers, or if you can, adopt encryption of the kind that not even security agencies are capable of cracking. Okay, so this is the situation. Now, a code of conduct, however, if applied and monitored correctly and adhered to by all the players in a certain vertical would allow those who adhere to this code of conduct to transfer data out of the European Union to themselves, despite the fact that the country in which they're operating, for example, the US, is deemed not adequate from a data protection point of view. So we'll stop there. So it's, it's not uh, an insignificant advantage. So even though you might be persuaded that there will be another bilateral data transfer agreement between the EU and the, the US, there's still a need for that certainty that a code of conduct would give you. Um, these bilateral agreements have been challenged and will be, will continue to be challenged. So, um, Michael, could you give me the next slide? Thank you. So, the optimist, the, the person that says, yeah, this sounds really a good idea. Well, let, let's, let's get on to it. What, what does a, a code of conduct do for us? Well, I'm sure you've, you know, if you have been even marginally involved in the whole GDPR preparedness um, saga in the organizations, you know that the stuff that just doesn't make sense, the stuff that lawyers come up and it just doesn't make sense. Uh, for example, you may have uh, being uh, involved in uh, what it is that we need to tell the individual exactly about how we deal with their data. So what it is that it, we have to do to be sufficiently transparent, you know, how much detail is enough detail. Now, that's one of the things that you could specify through a code of conduct as an industry standard. So, for example, in uh, commercial lending, this is the level of transparency that's acceptable within our sector and by accepted by all our peers. You may have come up with, um, you may have been involved in, do we ask for consent or do we uh, not ask for consent for data and just say that it's our own legitimate business interest to collect it. Again, this is something you can, as an industry, decide, look, on these categories of data, um, declaring that they're collected for a legitimate interest um, is okay, etc. So the pseudonymization, what, how do we do it? What is an adequate industry standard? Michael, could I have the next slide, please? And success, exactly. What, what else can we do with a code of conduct? We can 
specify how much we want to tell, how much we need to tell the public, the data subject, how we can allow individuals to exercise their rights without throwing a spanner in the works for our business processes. Because, of course, the exercise of rights is important, but you have to make sure that it doesn't prevent you from doing anything else in your, in your organization. Um, if you deal with children data, of course, you can have a standard for that. Um, the technical and operational measure, measures to be compliant, again, how do you demonstrate in one fell swoop that you are meeting the GDPR? What is an industry standard? And the next slide, Michael, we come to uh, the third uh, and final part of what is a successful code of conduct? What does it do for you? Um, you may have heard that you need to have state-of-the-art security measures. Okay, What is state-of-the-art for the financial sector? Do you have to go into military-grade encryption? Really? Is that what's needed? So that's something that you don't want to go to the courts to decide. And you don't want to have that decided for you by somebody who goes to the courts and sets a precedent for the rest of the industry. Much better to set the standard yourself in a collective effort. So security processing is an important element. Uh, how do you notify um, personal data breaches to supervisory authorities? Exactly what we said before. Um, what do we need to do to be able to transfer data out of the European Union to third countries, such as the US, which may not have adequacy? And lastly, you know, how much can we um, resolve disputes with um, upset data subjects for something that we may have come up short out of court? How much can we avoid the litigation costs? So all of this, Michael, could I have the next slide, is something that the optimist would say it's it's worth the effort. It's worth the effort. So who who exactly should should try and draft these codes? Well, the GPR doesn't tell you much about those, and they are associations or, quote, other bodies representing categories of controllers and processes. If you dig down the recitals, which are the sort of preliminary uh, bits of the GDPR, you can read a lot of emphasis on uh, category representativeness, on consultation, on stakeholder engagement. Um, you have to have regard to the responses to these consultations. And you also have a thinly veiled recommendation to consult the data subjects themselves. So wherever possible, ask. Ask the individual. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so if you have to think of a financial sector, really, a lot of organizations come into scope. If they meet these requirements, they could draft a code of conduct. A chamber of commerce comes to mind. A stock exchange? Perhaps, why not? A member's own stock exchange, London Medical Exchange, a commodity. Um, uh, British Bankers Association? Why not? So there is no real uh, list or limit to the association. As long as these key keywords and emphasis are um, uh, abided by. Michael, could I have the next slide? So the, the point is that, uh, as well as drafting it, uh, the code um, uh, has to be applied. You've drafted it, now what? Uh, it's not just a self-certification, a self-declaration um, of conformity to a code. You have to have a monitoring body. 
So the GDPR doesn't tell us if the body who uh, drafted the code can or cannot be also the body that monitors it. If it is, presumably, it has to be two parts of the same organization, two separate parts. But uh, the um, body can become a GDPR code of conduct monitoring body, provided they are independent and experts in the subject matter of the code. And they have to prove that so that the supervisory authority where the code is uh, proposed initially are satisfied. They have to have procedures which are established. Of course, you can't make them up on the fly. So <coughs> long-standing procedures <coughs> so that they can um, assess whether or not controllers and processes are applying the code. Uh, they have to have procedures for uh, handling complaints about infringements of the code and um, they have to have a lack of conflict of interest. Uh, Michael, next slide. <coughs> so there, there are six good reasons and they're not just uh, noble ethical reasons, they're expediency reasons because um, these are all obligations that uh, you would have anyway in the GDPR. And uh, if you manage to shoehorn all of these um, sort of solutions into a single uh, document, into a single framework, an industry code of conduct, you have uh, resolved many of your GDPR headaches in a single uh, shot. So if you remember, the GDPR asks controller not only to apply the GDPR, but also to demonstrate that they apply the GDPR, so demonstrate how they are accountable for all of this. So this is a, a turnkey solution. A, a code of conduct allows you to demonstrate compliance with the whole of the GDPR, if, of course, it's approved, if it's approved, an approved code of conduct. <coughs> you will also remember that every time you uh, deploy, you sorry, you, 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 you use contractors or subcontractors, you have to flow down all of your GDPR obligations to them. And in turn, your contractors or subcontractors have to tell you if at any point uh, you are asking them to breach the GDPR. So it's a double lock. It's kind of it's a two way obligation that you mutually have to be compliant to the GDPR. So because a code of conduct is in turn sort of uh, flowed down to the whole uh, supply chain of yours, you are demonstrating integrity of your supply chain. <coughs> Excuse me again. It demonstrates uh, monitoring by peers. Sorry, Michael, could you go back, please? <coughs> monitoring by peers because the monitoring body is a body in your own sector. Um, the standards that you're applying will be in lockstep with technology. It reduces the legal costs by the individuals because it's a collective effort. And last but not least, you can transfer data. So, Michael, now's the time for the next slide. So, I think the GDPR optimist will say, well, frankly, this is um, an admission that IT solutions, business processes evolve far more rapidly than any lawmaker can uh, could ever keep up with. So legislation wants to be technology agnostic, market neutral. <coughs> Therefore, it can uh, set the goals, but not the technology solution. And that's an admission that the legislator has. Um, 
thirdly, you can frankly say that technical standards really are only successful if they come bottom up, if they come from the, the, the users, the end users themselves. So why wait for the courts to tell you what is an appropriate standard? So uh, crowdsource them and then um, test them and then adopt them if you like them as a sector. So the profession themselves should formulate these rather than force the judicial system, which is not simply not equipped to um, to settle uh, standards of case law. Michael, next slide. Okay, so what would the uh, realist respond? <clears throat> the realist would probably um, next slide point to the fact that um, virtually no codes of conduct have been approved so far. So it's not been an area of focus by the um, data protection supervisory authorities. That the ultimate <clears throat> uh, seat of approval is the European Commission, and the European Commission is the executive political arm of the European Union. <clears throat> so the realist and the cynic would say, well, frankly, what interest does the European Union have in allowing other financial sectors outside the European Economic Area to thrive? Frankly, I don't see how that's going to happen ever. The realist would also point out that not all membership bodies are members owned. They're privately owned membership bodies. They're bought and sold freely. I have, I myself am a member of one which has been bought three times in the space of four years. Um, so not all of them are shaped around the German uh, Workers' Council uh, ideal. Um, there's definitely a conflict of interest from all, in all those membership bodies that have corporate members that sometimes determine the strategy of the of the whole uh, of the whole um, membership association. Um, the, the the cynic would also say, look, if we're talking standards. We're never going to find an agreement. No corporate uh, member is ever going to allow other corporate members' um, standards to become the market dominant standard. All we can do at best is to settle on some sort of neutral, uh, lowest common denominator. But it's, it's never going to work. It's never going to work for, for, for um, competition, commercial competition reasons. Um, lastly, those that know very well how cash-strapped all the uh, membership bodies are will tell you that throwing resources at a code of conduct of this magnitude without ever being able to commercialize it, for example, uh, the ICO um, makes money out of its standards, but uh, you would not be allowed to make money out of a GDPR code of conduct. So for, for membership organizations, that is uh, probably too big an ask. So the the cynic and the realist would say, this is never going to happen. Michael, can we go on to the pragmatist? And next slide. The pragmatist will tell you, oh, hang on a minute. Um, think about it. The shelf life of a regulation like a GPS is about 20 years. That's a long time. Way longer than the European Commission's lifespan, which is about five years. Um, any government, any national majority, national so even if you are tempted to uh, give up on this idea because, for example, relationship between the European Union and, say, the United Kingdom are at its lowest ever, you might be tempted to give up on this idea because you think they're never going to help the Shanghai stock exchange flourish. 
hold your horses. It's not that simple. Geopolitical alliances shift. The um, <clears throat> likelihood the bilateral data transfer agreements will be uh, upset again, like previously shown, <coughs> is such that it makes it important that you have a critical government in place. It's worth a shot. It's absolutely worth a shot. It's um, a long-term. It's a long-term engagement. It's a long-term guarantee, um, which is probably going to survive all the reversals of fortunes of various political dynamics. So do not think in terms of the current political dynamics. That would be a very short-sighted thing to do. And with this, I'm really keen to hear your questions. Next slide will tell you to get in touch with me. Michael, could I have the next slide? I'm on LinkedIn. I'm not on Twitter. So please reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm happy to give this again to your board, happy to quote, and happy to chat. <coughs> Excuse me, I seem to have a cough. Michael, over to you. Chiara, that was very good. Please uh, get, get, get a quick drink of water there because we've got uh, quite a few things to get through here. Um, just before we get cracking, we've got uh, quite a bit here. Certainly I was struck, uh, folks, uh, by when you think about the sheer number of trade bodies that are around, for example, in the city of London, we did uh, so well, we, uh, the Center for the Study for Financial Innovation has long studied who represents the city. And they constantly come up with uh, numbers north of 45 trade bodies and associations. And Chiara touched on a couple of uh, the BBA, uh, for, for example. Uh, but there are 45 of them out there, and, and they should all be thinking about it. We also participate in many other membership groups and organizations. And I, I personally uh, feel, uh, when I tumbled across this, that this is something that a responsible non-executive director should be putting uh, on the table of any type of membership body or organization. So uh, I'll leave it at that. But on to the questions. Um, Gary, you said that there have been virtually not, none approved, but could you give us a, an example of a few that have been approved? Last time I checked, the um, one that was closest to being approved, and I have to admit I haven't followed the whole saga, was a medical appliances one. So I, I presume there was also um, a need to prioritize certain uh, sectors over others. Um, partly is obviously um, uh, the submission's fault. You know, if, if you submit a code of conduct that is too vague or does nothing other than repeat the GDPR, they'll, they'll, they'll um, throw it back at you and say, no, come to us with actual uh, implementation standards. I think the, the ones that have been rejected so far and I can uh, certainly uh, remember two in the medical sector were just simply too generic. And that is a problem. If you're talking technical standards, you really have to overcome that sense of competition, um, come to some sort of um, agreement whereby there is a genuine difference uh, to, to the GDPR text. You can't, you can't just uh, <clears throat> propose. Many of us can imagine uh, as, uh, the, the amount of effort taken. Uh, having, uh, I, I happen to sit on the board of the United Kingdom Accreditation Service these 15 years, so I'm deep into the standards area and ISO. Um, and yet, honestly, standards vary enormously. They can be extremely easy to write and get a group of people around the table, and you can do it rapidly. The approval process is another thing. <clears throat> on the other hand, you can make a real pig's ear of it, uh, tie your shoelaces together, and spend 20 years uh, running to meetings or writing things down and never getting anywhere. So 
but that in some ways is your problem. Um, when it moves to the approval process, could you maybe in 60 seconds just outline, so is this, is this going to the European, uh, European Data Protection Group? Are they doing it? How does that process work? Because that's okay. the Okay. Yeah, well, um, I don't want to give everything away for <laughs> in, in one seminar, but yeah, simply this, uh, this three stages. You, you send it to one uh, national data supervisory authority. They, in turn, um, share it with the uh, rest of the uh, 27 European data supervisory authorities. And lastly, once that has gone through um, an approval, it goes as a final step to the European Commission. So. The, com the European Commission is the, the, the last stage, but it certainly has uh, had a good grilling by all the national supervisory authorities first. Um, and but your first quarter call should be one individual uh, supervisory authority right. in one country. And we don't have an example as yet, apparently, but assuming that I had a PACA well done code of conduct that would go through, how long is that process meant to take? A, a few months, three years? Yes. <clears throat> My guess is about 18 years. Last time I made an estimate, I think you, you have to um, be prepared to take it take it easy. Mm. Okay. Um, well, opening up here, um, Bob McDowell is always a very good value in, in these areas. He's got uh, he's got really two points. One is a compliment. He says it's a shame that Chiara's words of wisdom, as expressed in this presentation, were not highlighted before the implementation of GDPR. Uh, it is one of the sad aspects of the UK's membership of the EU that it's civil servants gold plated EU legislation. Uh, but he moves on to a question. Do you see an opportunity for binding arbitration clauses having a key role, uh, particularly as the English court currently have a two year waiting list for civil litigation cases? I'd like to reserve judgment on that, um, partly because it's the first time I've been asked this question. So I really would like to think more about it. Um, it's not a cop out. It's a can we connect and can you ask this question again on LinkedIn? I want to think about it. It sounds like it's a yes, um, but I really need to explore all the um, implications because I, it's the first time I've, I've come across it. So if I understand correctly, you would include binding arbitration clauses as part of the arbitration mechanism in a code of conduct. And it sounds like it's a resounding yes. Uh, but yeah, I think it, it would be it would be silly not to have not to want to think oh, about it. It's we'll such a good question. Bob, we'll put you and Bob in direct contact after this. No need for LinkedIn, Bob. I'll I'll send uh, your email on. Um, got an interesting point here. Marco Vaccia asks. Thanks for the presentation, Gara. Do you have any idea as to whether UK government is keen to encourage the use of codes of conduct under the UK GDPR? <clears throat> as you said, we haven't seen much of use of them so far under the EU GDPR. Um, I have, I have been reading enough about it, but it hasn't leapt out as one of the key priority areas. So firstly, I can't honestly, okay, short answer, um, no, <laughs> slightly longer answer, um, the, the government and the e, U, U, United Kingdom's Data Protection Supervisory Authority, the ICO, are not necessarily aligned on absolutely everything and everything because you have to remember that these supervisory authorities are um, independent they have to be independent from government from outside parties so whether or not the government approves it is one matter 
whether or not the ICO has given it a priority in its uh, work plan, etc., it's a separate matter. But I have not read enough about it, so I suspect it's a little bit low on the priority list. Okay. Uh, Ian Sheridan is curious. He says, thinking laterally, in your experience, have binding corporate rules proven to be effective, high-quality documents? Perhaps there are lessons from these intergroup codes to apply to Article 40 Code of Conduct codes. Absolutely, yes. I think that's a very good point. Any lesson you've learned by uh, drafting and, and deploying binding corporate rules will have to apply to um, to what you're trying to do with the code of conduct. But remember, these are industry across the industry. You know, that's the difficulty here. You you have to put together competitors to agree on an industry standard among them. So um, I don't. I think the the acrobatics of, of uh, a binding corporate rule exercise are important, but the, 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 the commercial reality is that a code of conduct is a different beast altogether. Okay. Uh, this is a question on which you might muse a little bit, now, and you did touch on it, to be fair, in your presentation, but I think Andrew Churchill would like to hear a bit more. How should we square the Commission's opinion that the UK will not have adequacy on a similar basis to the US through Schrems II? whilst the EU has adequacy arrangements with Japan and the UK-Japan free trade agreement includes data transfer? Uh, okay, uh, do you want the diplomatic answer? <clears throat> or do you want the, <laughs> the realist answer? So, uh, the diplomatic answer is that um, dynamics change and not everything is perfect but everything is perfectible okay now that's the diplomacy over the uh, realism uh, kicks in and obviously if no obviously delete the obviously the the governments can make bilateral agreements on anything okay two governments can make a trade agreement and they can make a data transfer agreement they can do that and if they're good, they will do that. Now, what the courts do is a different matter. And you have to remember that these bilateral trade agreements can be struck down. So I'm not sure what how that changes the equation in your question. Again, can you ask me again on LinkedIn in case I'm missing something, in case I'm missing a nuance there? But there is no question that Japan is a very ambitious um, target market, both for the European Union and for the UK. Um, there's no question that if you want a trade agreement, it, it, it would be mad not to uh, make sure that you also have a data transfer agreement alongside it. Um, otherwise, you are, have a very hollow trade agreement. If you can't move data, you can't actually trade. So I know that the UK is making it a prerequisite. You know, going forward, any trade agreement will have to incorporate a data transfer agreement. I know that the UK is government is, is kind of uh, wisened up to that and it's imposing that on its <laughs> on its agreements. Um, but, you know, the European Union is not going to play back to that. It's going to say, actually, no, they're two separate, they're two separate issues. Um, however, don't forget that the courts are always, always independent from governments. Um, whatever you might think, um, never give for granted that a political decision will be upheld by the courts. And what you presented is a kind of quite a compelling case for anybody who's involved in an association that's commercial, uh, maybe a few others, 
um, but definitely a commercial association. So if you're on the board of a trade body, an agency, as you pointed out, a stock exchange is representing its members. Um, this is definitely what I would consider an option and an option that you should have discussed. Maybe you decide it's just not what you want to do, but the option then gives you this lovely layer in between uh, some of the geopolitics that are floating around. Um, exactly. And, and uh, you and I are, uh, well, I'm a fellow of the British Computer Society, and you are as well, am I not correct? Or I am a member, yes. Member. yes. I'm not uh, a member, but a member. <laughs> uh, is the BCS doing anything in this regard? Um, diplomatic answer, I'm sure they're considering it. Realistic answer, um, it's, it's a, it's a very large and complex organization and it's, there's so many moving parts that okay. even if I'm very keen for them to try, I, I, you have to pick the right organization to lead the effort. Uh, so often trade bodies, there's a lot of talk. There's always talk. Let me close on a not quite final question in the sense that uh, Bob McDowell again has come back in and he's he's made a comment, but he put a question mark at the end of it. And I think I can turn it into a nice closing question. Uh, Bob points out that the EU and its agencies tend to be interested in hooking the big fish uh, because of the impact, because of the large fines. You know, the example, pour en carage, les autres. Um, so especially going forward where the regulators have more pressing issues over the next 10 years, uh, is this something that you feel that SME type organizations should be doing or is it really something to be left uh, to people with deep pockets who would pay for a lot of different options? No, I think it's exactly the kind of thing that small and medium organizations should be relying on because just think of all the legal expense or simply reinventing the wheel that every single small and medium enterprise in one sector should be doing. Uh, whereas if they can gang up and even put some resources towards a code of conduct effort, uh, this is really worth um, worth um, the while, especially I would say for small and medium um, organizations. Did I understand the question correctly, Michael? Yes, well, very there, much no, I think that's exactly their kind of job. That's exactly to their advantage. Well, I'm thinking, you know, in the United Kingdom, we've got 55 chambers of commerce. I think it is. We've got, uh, you know, the Federation of Small Businesses. We've got, we've got quite a few entities. I'm not 100% sure how they would craft that there's a special requirement, uh, but th they should think about it. And perhaps there are a few angles there that uh, they could use some help with. Okay, well, um, Chiara, uh, just just quickly in a closing, I'm getting all the thanks, which is always a sign that people have budgeted uh, 45 wow. minutes about this year. Uh, but just quickly, is there anything you'd like to say in closing? I think I'd like to say get in touch. The conversation is still very much open. Um, I'm, again, on LinkedIn, I share uh, generously whatever comes up from the from Brussels or whatever comes up from uh, organizations that put out uh, interesting ideas of, or 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 um, papers, but also, of course, if you want to even consider a code of conduct initiative, there's no harm in trying. Uh, reach out to me and let's see how far we can go. And even if you decide then it's not for you, at least you can, uh, you know, uh, chalk, chalk up to your um, sort of uh, list of, of uh, we've tried. Uh, this one, you know, why leave it on the table? It's an option. It should be tried. It should be tried. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Okay, well, if you just hang on for a second, I've got three rounds of thanks to give. Uh, firstly, if I might, again, to our sponsors, many of you are uh, various associations who might equally be thinking about the code of conduct. But as we are clearly in the area where technology meets finance, uh, I can imagine that many of our sponsors would, would find at least discussion of appropriateness for that of that interesting. Uh, the second thing I'd like to do is thank the audience. Uh, this is what we call a, a more arcane topic. Uh, and therefore, we only had just over 30 people, but that doesn't make it uh, unimportant. And it will be, rec it is recorded. It'll be up on the website in about 48 hours. So feel free to share it with people. Um, now, in, just in terms of what's coming up in, in the next week, we've got quite a few things on. If you go to the website, uh, funnily enough, tomorrow I'm interviewing Sir David Omond uh, as part of a CISI uh, venture. We're going to be talking to him about his new book, How Do Spies Think? So if you like the world of spooks, et cetera, hit our website and it will direct you off. Meanwhile, tomorrow afternoon, we have Sir Roger Gifford talking about the city, uh, particularly in the run up to COP26. It'll be clearly about climate change. But Robert was one of the two guiding forces in the Court of Aldermen behind the uh, Green Finance Institute here in the city of London. Uh, on Friday, we have a fascinating look again at how can you ensure things that can't really be clearly insured. So we're going to have Parhelion looking here at insuring against policy risk. Um, and then what we've got in the following week, uh, two areas, challenger banks, and an interesting uh, session with Eka Shwehi Iayen, who's the Secretary General of the Insurance Development Forum. So uh, lots, lots coming ahead. But I must say my, my final thanks go most especially uh, to Chiara. Chiara, thank you so much. Uh, it's an area that we all do need to know about. And you've been very good at laying out extremely clearly what the opportunities are. And I love, I loved your three approaches of optimism, realism, and pragmatism. So thank you very much for that. Thanks Unfortunately, in the days of COVID, I cannot open the floodgates to let the audience thank you. So I will channel our audience with my little Korean karmic copper, <laughs> uh, which I've got from my Buddhist temple in Bukoksa. And, and I say thank you. And uh, thanks to all of you. And, forward to seeing you soon. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Thanks. Great.